Exodus chapter 5 and 6 is where we're going to be. I have some Bibles up here if you showed up and you did not have one. We're covering like a chapter and a half this morning, so a lot of text to follow. Anyone else need one? God bless you, brother. Anyone else need a Bible this morning? Miss. I love this. my favorite part. How are you doing, brother? All right. Well, before we get to the text, I have a couple things I want to say. I want to say good morning again. It's good to see you all. It's great to be back with you. We had an excellent time, about 14 of us up at the men's retreat up at Santa Cruz Mountains, um, Redwood Christian Park last Saturday, last Friday, Saturday. It was really, it was excellent. Great time of bonding, great time to connect, to connect together. Sean McDowell was our speaker. And if you know him, he's, he's an apologist and he's, man, he's going to push some buttons that you don't really want to be pushed. You kind of want to be pushed, but you don't really want to be pushed. And, and night one, he did this atheist encounter. And seriously, the tension in that place rose like you wouldn't believe. This is a Christian conference center, but he kind of puts on these glasses and acts like he's an atheist. And seriously, people were getting riled up. But it pointed out his point of doing all this. And this is the part that I wanted to share with you. We want to be witnesses for Jesus amongst our family members, our friends, our co-workers. We want to be, we want to be witnesses. We're called to be witnesses, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to testify to who Jesus is. But what he said is our medium, the, the mode in which we convey that message, it has to be love, right? The message is truth. The medium is love. In that first instance, the medium, the way that we were trying to communicate the message with this, you know, atheist encounter, it was not love. And it was truth, but I want you to think about that. Sometimes we as Christians, we're like, I want to share the truth. I want to share the truth. So we say the medium is truth and the message is truth. That's not the way it is. The medium is love or we're a resounding gong. The the message is truth. And in the same way, it's the other side. If, If the medium is love and the message is love and we're not sharing truth, that's not what we're called to do either. That's another fallacy of the way the church is kind of posturing itself. We say, I want to love and so I'm going to love. But it's not that either. It's love and truth. Grace and truth. That's what Jesus came to model. So I share that with you and just encourage you to do that. I was encouraged, stretched to do that myself. But it was good. So... The other thing I want to talk about is these Thrive Groups. I want to just really echo what March was talking about and his excitement for these Thrive Groups. I'm ecstatic about these Thrive Groups. This is a long time in coming. I really want to encourage you to be a part of one of these groups. I love this whole idea, in Christ we thrive. And I've been holding some of this back, but I came across a few different stories. I came across one that was an obituary. My brother Michael Groms has shared it with me, an obituary. And it said, for the cause of death, failure to thrive. Think about it. There's no real reason to live. Just There was nothing wrong. It's not cancer. It's not some difficult illness. It wasn't a car accident. It was just, I just didn't have enough reason to live, so I died. I failed to thrive. And I want you to know that should never, let it never be said of a Christian that we failed to thrive. All things that pertain to life and godliness have been given to us in Christ, and we have each other, the fellowship of the brethren, so let's not neglect gathering together, both corporately, and now I love all these different things that are going on in the house. So please, I encourage you, I, I pray that you would engage with one of those. I'm going to have March and Nick, they're, the, they're hosting those two Thrive Groups, they're going to be back at the resource table, ask them, hey, when, what should I expect? I want to be a part of this. What are you going through? What does it look like? And, and get to talk with some of those guys, and, and hopefully 
one of those work. And, and he said, we've got two that are launching next week. We actually have three. There's two that are happening in, you know, kind of church-related functioning. But there's a third. My wife and I are launching a third Thrive. We're calling it Thrive Kids. And it is with the effort of reaching the kids in our kids' public school. We have sent emails and texts to, to dozens of parents to see if they would allow their kids to be part of a group that we're centering around trying to introduce them to Jesus. So please be praying for that as well. We're kind of handling this kind of in-house for now. We're not necessarily opening it up to all the church kids now. It's an outreach, but we're trying to see what the Lord would do. So be praying for that as well. We're excited about it. One more announcement. Marsh did a good job, but I missed you so much. I wanted to talk to you too. We have a, a blessed little addition to our fellowship. I want to introduce you to Colton James here. Uh Oh, it's not switching for me. There's Colton. There's Mr. Parker. There's Zoe. There's Colton James. So there he is. He's doing well. Becca Schneider had her baby. So Ian's there and, and Mama's there. And so be, uh, be in prayer for them. It was, it's just a blessing. It's so amazing to see the miracle of childbirth. It's so amazing to see what God has done, knitting this little one together in the womb and then bringing this child out into this world. And we think about, oh, this world, there's some, some tricky things going on. But be praying. Be covering this family in prayer. Be aware. We're going to send out some emails and get some meals coming for them. But I think we had a week, a week to kind of work some of those things out. But, but there he is, baby Colton. All right, let's turn our attention to our Bible study. We've got a chapter and a half that we're going to cover here before we're finished up. So why don't you pray with me, and we will get started. Father, we come to you in in Jesus' name, and God, we come to you with just expectancy. Fathers, we're going to see Moses come to you later in these, these very chapters with expectancy, knowing that, God, our prayers don't bounce off the ceiling. Our, our prayers are not falling upon deaf ears. God, as we come to you in Jesus' name, as we come to you because Jesus is our high priest and forerunner who always lives to make intercession for us, we can come with expectancy that you're going to hear and that in your timing, how you so will, you're going to respond. And worst case, you're going to strengthen us for what is ahead. You're going to give us mercy and and help in our time of need. And so, Father, we we come to you with expectancy, and and we just ask that you show show us more of who you are. God, this church exists to bring glory to your name. This church exists as a place to worship you, and and then now to sit at your feet and say, Father, teach us. Spirit, you be the teacher. Bring illumination to your word. We're all here saying, Father, speak. Your church is listening. And so, God, give us all ears to hear and, and eyes to see, hearts willing to understand and obey what it is that you want to unfold before us this morning. So we lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we get back to Exodus this morning, after a week away, I want to catch us up ever so quickly with where we're at. Chapter 4 ended with, with Moses and Aaron in Egypt. They finally made it back to Egypt. They finally followed what God has, has called them to do. And Moses, remember, he's been raised up to be this instrument, but he kind of had the problem with, with talking and the reluctance, and so he has Aaron come alongside him. So they're both there. But what I want us to see is as they 
they arrive, they're meeting with the elders of Israel. So they're going to kind of call those elders out. They're going to have this meeting with just them. And we kind of get the idea, Aaron being the spokesman, Aaron is going to say, Moses, show him the rod of God. Show him what God can do, Moses. And so he's going to throw the rod down. The rod's going to turn to a snake. And he's going to pick it back up. It's going to be back a rod again. Show him the sleight of hand trick. Remember, he puts his hand in his robe. He pulls out its leprous. He puts it back in. It's healed. Show him the cup of water slash blood when it's dumped out on dry land. Moses, show him what God has shown you, given you as signs to validate who you are as the sent one of the Lord. And so they're going to do all that. We get the idea they're going to do all that. But the other part I want us to see is Aaron is going to share all the words that God shared with Moses with the children of Israel. All the words, right? Where the Bible is something we can take literally when it says he shared all the words, he shared all the words. And they received them. And they respond in worship. They're going to worship the Lord together. They're having this intimate moment where they're saying, Yes, God, we believe you. We know that what you said you're going to do, you're going to do. And so they're worshiping here. But what we're going to see in the text this morning is it's like they missed this one part, this one important part, that things are going to get worse before they get better. Right? And I want us to know this title here. I kind of threw that word sometimes in there because I want you to know sometimes things get worse before they get better. I want you to know that that's not a fact, right? It doesn't mean every single situation you're ever going to find yourself in, it's always going to get worse before it gets better. That's not what I'm saying, right? It's not a law. We, we think of like the law of sowing and reaping. That is a law that God has instituted upon his very creation. What you sow, what we plant into our lives, we're going to reap it, right? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. What you sow, you will also reap. That's a law or gravity. That's a law. But this isn't a law. This is just like, you know, sometimes it works out that way. But in this instance, in the book of Exodus, it is going to get worse before it gets better because God said that is what is going to happen. Now, what is interesting is if Moses shares all the words with Aaron and Aaron shares all the words with the elders of Israel and they seem to miss that point, you're kind of, well, how do they miss that point? And we say, well, well, perhaps they missed that point due to something called selective listening. Anyone ever been, been a victim of selective listening? Either you were saying something and the person didn't hear you, or you were the one who was supposed to be hearing something and you didn't catch it all. Listen, I'm getting worse at this. My wife can testify. I'm, I'm becoming a, a worse selective listener, I think. But my kids are totally notorious for this. If I tell my kids something, hey kids, clean your rooms and then we'll go get some ice cream. Inevitably, like five minutes later, when are we going to get some ice cream? Um, after you clean your room. And there's like the tearing of clothes and revolting. What? We got to clean our rooms? When was that a part of the deal? And I go, always? Always? That's what I, that's what I said. Clean your rooms and then we'll go get ice cream. But they don't hear that because they only focus in on the enjoyable part of the message. That's called selective listening. We do that, right? We hear what we want to hear. We hear what we like to hear. And we just conveniently omit or don't retain what we don't like to hear. And it kind of seems like that is what has been going on here in the book of Acts. Here, after Moses shares all these words, after Aaron shares all these words, they only grab a hold of the enjoyable part. They say, oh, God's going to deliver us. That's great. Oh, God has heard our cries. That's great. God is going to take us out of Israel or take us out of Egypt and take us to Israel. That's great. We love all that. But they miss the whole part where it's going to get worse before it gets better. And we're going to see that. You're thinking, well, where are you getting all that? You're going to see it here in a minute. 
as we read the text and see what I'm talking about. So let's do that. I want to read the first 21 verses of chapter 5 right away. So let's see what happens here. Chapter 5 starts out saying, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord? That I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go into the desert three days' journey, sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take people away from their work? Go back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go get yourselves straw where you can find it, yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also the officers of the children of Israel from Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? Then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, Why are you dealing thus with your servants? There is no straw given to your servants and they say to us, Make brick. Indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But Pharaoh said, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Therefore, go now and work, for no straw shall be given you, yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble. After it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. Then, as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent or a stench in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So as we read all that, there's some repetitive information, but we can all see now things have just gotten worse for the children of Israel, haven't they? Pharaoh did not respond the way we're going to see Moses and Aaron thought they were going to respond, the way the children or the elders of Israel thought they were going to respond, and now things have gotten worse. But let's talk about what we just read here. Notice again, the, 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 ver- the first word says, afterward. After the words were shared, after the worship service, after everyone is feeling great about what God said he was going to do, 
Then Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh for the very first time. And they're laying out this situation as God has sent them. Now, I'm reading into the text a little bit, but I think Moses and Aaron are brimming with confidence. I think that reluctance that Moses and Aaron, well, Moses specifically had earlier, I think it is all dissipated. And I think that, because remember, Moses' big issue as expressed in the burning bush, his major hang-up was most concerned with, are the children of Israel going to receive me? Will the elders of Israel heed my voice? Will the, el- as, will the elders of Israel believe that I have been sent by you, God? That was his main hang-up. You can go back and look at it. Never once does he say, hey, is Pharaoh going to heed me? Right? Never once does he ask about Pharaoh at all. Moses doesn't think Pharaoh is going to be the hang-up in this situation, even though God told him twice Pharaoh was going to be the hardest part of this whole situation. So now that the children of Israel, the elders of Israel have received Moses, I think he's feeling great. I think he's brimming with confidence. He's going to show up here before Pharaoh and quite confidently, boldly, he's going to say, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. Now, if you go back and you read what God told them to say, we're going to see they're actually going to make the request that what God asked them to say in the second request. This is just them saying, this is what God feels. Thus says the Lord, let my people go. But think about that. It's almost in like a prophetic tone, right? It sounds like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Elijah coming in there and saying, thus says the Lord, this is what God's going to do. And so they say it so boldly. Now, he is going to do that. It's not incorrect. But they're coming, showing, we're kind of getting ahead of this situation. But I don't know about you, I don't know how long that request hung out in the air. But I picture these two guys coming in out of the desert. Pharaoh's probably being told, who are these guys? They're getting an audience with Pharaoh. And then they come, you know, no real introduction of themselves. Hey, this is what the Lord God says. Let my people go. Let the Hebrew people go. And I don't know if there's like kind of a a moment where that kind of hangs in the air. You ever said something and it comes out of your mouth and it's like you can see it for a minute. It just hangs out there. Or there's like awkward silence. Awkward silence enough to hear maybe like a cricket or two chirp because like this is doesn't seem like it's going to go. I don't know how long. And I don't know what Pharaoh would have done when he heard this, but, but I, I can picture in my mind the consternation and the smugness of Pharaoh's face when he responds to the request that they just made to him. Pharaoh is going to respond to them kind of famously, somewhat boldly. He is going to say, who is the Lord? And I want you to know, this isn't like Pharaoh saying, oh, I'm so glad you came up to me. Hey, by why we're at it, who is the Lord? Hey, will you tell me who he is? Like, this is not an open-ended, friendly tone. Let's talk about who the Lord is. He says, who is the Lord? Why would I obey him? Why would I care at all what the Lord has to say regarding what I should do? And I don't know about all of you, but every single time this week as I've read that, and it's been about a dozen times, I shudder at that response. It gives me goosebumps even now to think, wow, I can't imagine responding to the word of the Lord like that. But that's what he does. He responds with with disdain. He responds in sarcasm. He responds as if to say, are we talking about the God of these people? Have you been paying attention? They've been my slaves for over 400 years. Slaves to Egypt for over 400 years. He really hasn't been working out too well for them lately. And now you're going to come in here to me and tell me what I'm supposed to do? I'm supposed to obey this God that hasn't even delivered his people for the past four centuries? 
He's, that's ridiculous. I'm not going to obey him. That's his tone. That's his perspective. Note that this is how he responds to this request the first time. And he tells us clearly, I don't know the Lord. I don't know him. So no, I'm not going to obey him. But what I want us to see, which is really kind of setting the stage for an important subplot within the book of Exodus. We've talked about the main theme of the book of Exodus is God's redemptive ability. It's God's redemptive power. It's God redeeming, rescuing his people according to his promises and delivering them into the promised land as he has foretold. Right? It's a redemptive work of God. It's a book of redemption. But if there's a subplot, kind of a secondary theme that we all want to tune in for, it's showcased for us right here. It's between a battle between Pharaoh, a created human being, And the Lord God himself, the creator of all things. And I'm using this word battle loosely, all right? I mean, it's not really a battle. It's such a one-sided thing. But I'm using it so we can kind of understand. A battle in the sense between a self-exalting, prideful man who arrogantly thinks he can stand before God and doesn't need to obey really thinks that he has the power or authority over God, and yet God, the gracious, patient, long-suffering, almighty, perfectly holy God of the universe, who is not going to contend with man forever, and after giving ample opportunity for Pharaoh to repent by showing him signs and wonders with his own outstretched arm, is going to end this whole saga in an utter defeat of Pharaoh and his household, because it's going to come at a great cost. But I want you just to know that we live in a culture that is full of pharaohs who think I can stand before God on my own, who arrogantly shake their fist at the Lord, saying, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind, who think I can stand before the Lord. And the same example of Pharaoh is going to be their end if they do not repent and humble themselves before Almighty God. That's what we're seeing as an important subplot. And it's heavy because we're going to see the way things all shake out. And we're going to talk more about this as we continue through. But ultimately, Pharaoh is on the wrong side of the equation. And he's not going to humble himself. And we're going to see very clearly how incorrect that is. But he just says, who is the Lord and why should I listen to him? By the time we're done with the book of Exodus, we're going to know who the Lord is. And we're all going to say, Pharaoh, I wish you would have listened to him. But it's just an example. Let it be an inspiration for all those people that we are sharing with. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And anyone with that same mindset is going to be found weighed and found wanting, right? The scales are never going to tip in their favor when God stands on the other side of the scale as the perfect judge with his law as the perfect standard. So let that just kind of sink in. That's an important subplot that we're going to talk about here. But back to the narrative here. How does Moses respond, or how do Moses and respond? How do Moses and Aaron respond to kind of Pharaoh's rebuttal here? Pharaoh saying, "I'm not going to o- obey." I want you to notice their kind of tone change. They they delivered that first declara- declaration with great boldness, but you're going to see that tone is going to change quite a bit. You're going to see with less boldness, with less of a command. This time it's much more of a request. They say, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And they say, please, please let them go. Please let us go three days into the wilderness to sacrifice, to worship the Lord our God. And and this is the request that God has actually given them to bring. 
And we talked about this a few weeks ago. If you're wondering, what do you mean three days? I thought God wanted to deliver them out entirely. And we say, yes, he did. This was just to expose the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, the condition of his heart, to say he's not even willing to give them three days off. He's not going to let them go permanently, easily. And so this is just exposing some of that situation. He's not going to even give in to this. So he says, no, I'm not going to let them go. There's going to be no desert tent revival meeting worship service for the Hebrew people. At least not yet. There will be, but not yet. And so he's going to say no. In fact, Pharaoh, how he really responds here, he he doesn't even say anything really. He's kind of saying, get these two guys out of my sight. Get these two guys and their ridiculous request out of my sight. They are wasting my time. He's really saying, Moses, I don't even need to respond to you again. No, my answer is unchanged. No. But he's going to say later that these are false words, that that they're kind of coming up with this false idea, creating a false hope in the Hebrew people. And what it's really doing is it's taking away from their work, making them idle in the land of Egypt. So notice Pharaoh's solution. He says, what they really need is to work more. They need to work harder. They need to work longer. And friends, I want you to understand this. Remember back to Exodus chapter 1. It was described of the Hebrews' work. It was described of what they were up against in Egypt. Remember, it was described as, as hard affliction. It was described as rigorous labor. It was described as their lives had been made bitter with hard bondage and oppression. What it means is they're already under an incredible workload. And if it doesn't seem like it could get even harder, it just has. He's just made it harder upon them because it does get worse before it gets better. And Pharaoh's solution here is no more straw will be given to them to make the brick. They had been giving them kind of cut up straw to be able to aid the process of making brick. As they're pulling clay out of the Nile River to make this brick, I want you to think straw was was a binding agent. Straw was enabling the brick to stay together better so those brick would not be marred. And so it would dry harder and it would dry faster, allowing them to meet the high quota that they were expected to produce every single day. And so now when he says no more straw, it's not like not having straw is really a viable option if they're going to continue to have the high output. So what are they going to do? Now they have to go get their own straw. They have to go gather their own stubble to be able to continue to put that into the clay, to continue to harden it and bind it in order to meet that quota because we've seen it's not going to be reduced. And so what that's doing is making a ton more work for them. And what they're doing also is when they don't meet their quota, they're beating these officers. They're beating them. Sometimes they're lifting a sword and killing them. Right? Again, things have gotten worse, not better. Now, a side note in this narrative, but something important to note here is, is, is there's so many things that you can take from our Bible narrative. There's so many things that you can take from what is told to us in the Scripture and then go see it in the historical archaeological account. And I love doing that. But this instance here, we're reading about something that's very difficult. We're reading about the work that is being placed upon these Hebrew slaves. We've already read about them being used to build two supply cities in Egypt back in Exodus chapter 1, Pithom and Ramses. And there have been expeditions done specifically in the city of Pithom. I read about these this week. You can get some books, get some, you know, find some websites, look up to some of these. There's been so many expeditions done to find archaeological evidence to validate the Bible narrative. 
But in Pithom specifically, there was some excavations done. And what they found is when they, they're breaking down this city and they're excavating this city and they see in the walls, the brick walls, they see in the early stages, there's nice brick with straw that has been provided because it's cut nicely. It, it's much more pure. And then there's sections a little higher later in their building process where there's brick that just has a bunch of stubble and it doesn't look as nice. And then there's some after that where there's, there's brick that just doesn't have any clay. Because after they're sent throughout all of Egypt to find what they can find, to find the stubble, they're going to eventually not be able to find any more. The quota's not going to change. They have to continue to do this load. So I just pointed that out because I love that stuff. I love seeing that God does this. It's hard. It's difficult. And I can't imagine in the moment for some of them how challenging it would have been. But yet how God uses even that to show us all these years later that his book is historically accurate, to show us that archaeologically we can find there really was a city, there really was buildings, there really was brick, and something like this that we could just gloss over and move on actually is something God uses to help validate this being something he really did. It's not myth, it's not legend. And there's so many more expeditions that have been done in, in Egypt to support the book of Exodus and throughout our entire Bibles. Do your research. We do not follow a blind faith. We are not looking at a book that is just legend or myth. We're talking about history here. So we see that, but back to the narrative here and the, the following this through, the whole situation is bad. It's certainly requiring a bunch more work for these people, for the Hebrew people. And so these taskmasters are not lessening the workload. People are being beaten now, killed with the sword. And eventually, notice in verse 15, these Hebrew officers, notice these are Hebrew officers. It says, the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh. So within the Hebrew people, they've raised up some to be officers to oversee the rest of these brick-making procedures. And they're going to go into Pharaoh and they're going to say, Pharaoh, why are you treating your servants so poorly? They're saying, what have you done? What's wrong here? You're not giving us straw. You're beating us. The officers are being beaten for not meeting the quota, but they're saying, it's your it's your own people's problem. You're not giving us the supplies necessary to meet that high demand, the quota that you've put over us. And Pharaoh's ultimately going to say, I don't care. You're idle. The problem is you have too much time on your hands. So what I want you to do is work more. And Pharaoh is in essence saying, in a way, I don't want you to worry about your old God. All I want you to know is I am your God now. You work for me now. You belong to me now. Get back to work. Right, understand the position that he's taking, right? He's digging his heels in against the Lord God. So the next thing that we're told is these officers, these Hebrew officers are going to leave the court of Pharaoh. They're going to go outside. And I want you to see what happens here. They see Moses and Aaron who are standing there to meet them. And they look at Moses and Aaron and now they have disdain in their eyes towards these supposed deliverers. And they said, the Lord look upon you and judge you for you have made the people abhorrent. You've made the people stink even worse in Egypt than we already did. He's telling them, Pharaoh didn't even need a reason to lift the sword and kill us before. But now you've just gave him one. And I want you to know, it, it might not catch the weight fully for all of us as, as we read this here. But if we try to take a step back and consider Moses for a minute. Consider what these words would have meant to Moses. Let's remember our guy Moses. Let's remember for the past 40 years, Moses had been minding his own business, 
living the simple life, doing the daily things, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep. Dreams of grandeur and ambition in Egypt have long since died. For for longer period of time, he has not been the prince of Egypt than he was actually a prince of Egypt. He doesn't even have much ambition at all. Do you notice that he, he shepherds his father-in-law's sheep, right? He doesn't even have his own flock. He doesn't even seem like he wants his own flock. He's just like, let me live my life. Let me check the box. Let me do my own thing. And then the Lord shows up to him and says, Moses, I want to use you. We got the whole burning bush, bush situation. God reveals himself. God calls himself. And albeit reluctant at first, Moses obeys. But he shows up here in Egypt. He sh- he's gone and told Pharaoh what God wanted Pharaoh to know. He He's expecting things to get immediately better. We're going to see that in a minute. Moses really believed, I'm going to show up one time, tell Pharaoh, let my people go. He's going to say, okay, roger that. They can all go. Tell them to start packing their bags right now. He really believes that was how it was going to go. Why? Because he's been having some selective listening and missed the whole part where God told him it was going to get worse before it get better. And Pharaoh's going to have a hard heart. And God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And it's going to take God's own mighty outstretched hand in order to compel him to let his people go. He's missed all that. It's not on his mind. So now in this moment, when these Hebrew officers look at him, it, it, is, it is something that would have struck to the very deepest core of Moses' insecurity. For them to look at Moses and say, you, the Lord look at you and judge you. You have made things worse for the children of Israel. You coming here, we are less delivered now than we were before you came. And that was the greatest fear he had in the conversation with the Lord in the burning bush. I don't want him to reject me. Again, right? He's already been, the one thing I don't want to do is I want to make it worse for them. I want to deliver them. I want to be used by by you, God. That's my goal. But I want you to think about that. Think about some of those relationships that you have in your life. Think about some of those family members that you've shared with again and again and again. Or think about those neighbors. Or think about that that marriage. Or think about whatever situation it's hitting close to you. Some of us, and I've been there in, in times in some of those contexts where the whole thing seems like it's hanging by a thread. Right? One more comment or one more attempt or one more anything. It seems like the whole thing is going to fall apart. It's hanging by a thread. And yet I have a love for these people and I know God loves these people or the situation, this relationship. And I still feel compelled to go and share with them. But it's like I have one goal, maybe two. I want to be faithful, but I don't want to make things worse. The one thing I know I don't want to do is make things worse. And yet sometimes you open up your mouth in faithfulness to the Lord, just like Moses has, and the only thing that seems to happen is it gets worse. And now you're feeling completely shattered. I really believe this is striking the core of the greatest insecurity of Moses' heart in this moment. This was the one reason he didn't want to go. Don't let this happen. And so he is discouraged He is broken hearted over this. He doesn't know what to do. I think he's thinking the one thing I'd really like to do is go back to Midian. I'd love to go back to obscurity. But I want you to see what Moses does do. Please tune in for this. Please engage with what is going on here. Verse 22. It says, So Moses returned to the Lord. And he said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it that you've sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. 
when I say that it seems to me that Moses really believed that in one encounter with Pharaoh, God was going to deliver his people. Here's my textual evidence right here. He's, Lord, why haven't you delivered them? Right? I spoke to Pharaoh one time or twice if we really wanted to get technical and count, right? But he, he appears before him one time. He's like, why didn't it happen? And we've already talked about this, right? God has already told him, obedience isn't easy. Success is not going to come immediately. It's going to take some time. Pharaoh's going to harden his own heart against me. Pharaoh's going to harden his heart against my people. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart because I'm going to set this up for a great deliverance. But Moses, through selective hearing, he's missed all this. And now he finds himself completely discouraged, asking some very tough questions, but asking the right person those questions. I love this part, church. I I really want you to engage with this. Notice that he returns to the Lord and he's going to ask God the tough questions. Notice that Moses doesn't run to the world for comfort. Notice that Moses doesn't run to the bottle for comfort. Notice that he doesn't pop a few pills or go to another substance to try and find comfort. Notice that he doesn't go get worldly counsel. Notice that he goes back to the Lord and he asks God tough questions. Christians, I want you to know we can ask God tough questions. There's nobody better to ask than God. And my case in point is Jesus, the Son himself. Right? You know Jesus shows up and asks the Father, Father, will you take this cup from me? That's like the toughest question you can possibly fathom. Jesus was born to die. He came and took on flesh knowing he was going to die on a cross for the sins of the world. Yet on the night he's going to be betrayed, he's got so much agony, he's sweating great drops of blood. In his humanity, he's feeling the weight of what it's going to require to drink the cup to its full and fully satisfy the wrath of God, fully satisfy the payment required for our sinful disobedience. His righteous life, dying on a cross, in in a, a substitutionary place. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Father, take the cup. He asks his father the tough questions. And yet in that moment, his father's gonna say, no, Jesus, that cup is for you. There's no other way to save humanity. There's no other way to bring human beings back into a right relationship for me unless you drink the cup, die on that cross, the perfect death, satisfying the righteous requirement. And he's going to do this. He's going to say, fine, Father, not my will be done, but your will. And not fine, like, fine, Father, but like, yes, Lord, I'll do it. Your will be done. But I'm just, I'm just pointing this. He, we can ask the tough questions. When we find ourselves discouraged, when things get worse before they get better, when we feel crushed because our expectations haven't met the way we thought they were going to meet, when we find ourselves in the circle of why, why did you send me, God? Why did you allow this to happen? Why haven't you done what I thought you were going to do? Why haven't you delivered? When we find ourselves in the circle of why, there is nowhere else to go but to return to the Lord and ask him. Right? Please remember that. There's nowhere else to go. Come back to the Lord and say, God, I don't understand this. All this has happened because I came, because I obeyed. I feel like you haven't done your part. It's all gotten worse. The people are less delivered now, if that's even possible. But he brings it to the right place. And God is going to respond to him. This is probably my new latest favorite section of scripture. I say latest favorite of scripture because I might have another favorite next week because I love the entire Bible, but this this chapter six is is epic. God is going to respond, but please know this. He's not going to answer the why. 
but he's going to tell you who he is. And he's going to tell us what he promised he would do. And he's going to ultimately say, you need to trust me. You need to have faith. You need to allow me to be who I am as you follow after me. So note this. He returns to the Lord. He abides in the Lord. He presses into the Lord in his greatest hour of need. He asks the tough questions and then buckle your seatbelts for what the Lord is about to say here. Chapter 6, verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Now I'm going to stop mid-verse there. We're going to pick up the rest in a minute. But I want you to see what is being said here. Exodus chapter 6. I love this part. Moses returns, seeks the Lord, finds the Lord, cries out to the Lord, and God answers. But this part I love so much. What does God say first? He says, Moses, you've just seen the best Pharaoh can do. But get ready to see what I'm going to do. You wait and see what I am going to do. I am the Lord. And he's going to start reminding him, remember who I am. Right now, you're looking at Pharaoh. Right? And don't we do that sometimes? Like, we get all caught up and we're like, we're looking at the wrong thing. We're like, oh man, Pharaoh's mighty. Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. Pharaoh's got a ton of control. Pharaoh can just speak. No more straw. And now a whole nation, two plus million people, are now in worse agony than they are before. Pharaoh has a lot of power. Right? But God says, he ain't got nothing on me. He's got nothing compared to who I am. Moses, you need to look at who I am. I'm telling you beforehand that not only is Pharaoh going to agree to let my people go, he himself is going to drive them out. Do you understand how huge that is? Moses just stood there and heard with his own two ears, Pharaoh saying, who is the Lord? Why would I obey him? No, I'm not going to let them go. And he has a choice to make. Is he going to believe what the Pharaoh, what the world has to say? Or is he going to believe what God has to say? Because God just told him, contrary to everything you think you see and know, I'm telling you, he will drive them out. I'm going to compel him so powerfully, Pharaoh is going to want them gone. He says, I'm never going to do it. Oh, I promise you, he will. And we have a choice to make. We have a decision of faith to make. Are we going to believe what the world says? Or are we going to believe what God has said, written, and recorded, preserved in His Word? We have to do that every single day. What are we going to believe? Let the Word of God be true and everything contrary to it, the lie. God has spoken and He is faithful. So He says, God, speaking to Moses, don't forget who I am. I am that I am. And He's going to use the name of the Lord, the proper name that we talked about a few weeks ago, Yahweh, the Y-H-W-H, the all-existing one, the self-existing one, the one who has always been, who will always be, the one who is the creator of all things, he himself not created but always existing, the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, saying Pharaoh has a beginning and an end and his end is going to come, God would say, but I don't. Focus on who I am, Moses. 
Focus on what I am going to do here, Moses. Don't forget, it was never going to depend upon you. It was never going to depend on your eloquence or your strategy or what you're able to do in your own strength. It's all about who I am and I am capable. I know what I'm going to do here. So the first thing that Moses does in his confronting of discouragement is he presses on to the Lord. But the first thing God does is he just says, will you just remember who I am? Please think about how simple that is. I am such a proponent, and I pray as long as I get opportunity to stand up here and talk to you, I'm going to tell you, read your Bibles daily. Pray daily. Set Set aside time to do both of those daily. Because sometimes, if nothing more, all I find out is who God is again. I just get reminded about who God is and what he's done. And I look at my situation and, you know, like 99.9% of all situations that I have at my disposal, they're all bigger than I can handle, right? Really, it's, it's that much. I mean, I can't handle anything. And so I see it and I go, but God can. And when I look about who God is, now my situation, even Moses' situation with Pharaoh, it looks small in the light of God's glory and grace. It really does. I'm telling you, if you do that, I know many of you can, can give me an amen, and I would love it if you would give me an amen about this, but think about this. This is who God is. And you come before him and you start to see really everything else is much smaller than I thought it was in the light of who God is. So sometimes, thank you, before anything else comes, sometimes just be reminded about who God is. God hasn't answered a why for Moses. He just said, Moses, I am the Lord. I am that I am. And that alone changes my whole perspective. It alone changes his whole perspective. But he he says, this is who I am. Now, he's starting to to talk about what he's going to do here. And verse 3 is kind of a tricky one. It says, God speaking, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, Lord, Yahweh, was not, I was not known to them. Now that's a tricky verse, and I'm here to tell you there's a few different perspectives that people can take and understand. So this is not the only one. I'm just going to give you one this morning. But what he's saying here is he says, To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I revealed myself as God Almighty. Now in the Hebrew, it's the phrase El Shaddai. And you're going to see I put six verses, all six of the times that God reveals himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're all in your study guide to look at later. But that's where he says, El Shaddai, I am God Almighty. And when you look at all those instances, it's in the context of God doing something that only God can do. Like, like Moses, or like Abraham having a child at 100 years old, and his wife Sarah having a child at 90, right? He's in like, don't worry, I know that's going to be tricky to, to explain, but I am El Shaddai. I am the all-sufficient one. I am the God who is able to overcome your inadequacies. That's what he's saying. That's what El Shaddai means. I am the Lord God over your weaknesses, able to work through all of your inadequacies. And so he's telling him, here's, here's God telling Moses, listen, I'm going to do something bigger to reveal myself even more fully. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they only knew me as El Shaddai. But I'm telling you, I am that I am, and I'm going to use you and the situation in Exodus to show the world that I am that I am, that God is the all-encompassing one, the one overall, the one above all, the one who holds all things together with the power of his word, the one who, when he stretches out his righteous right hand, no one can stop it, no one can stand against him. That's what he's saying, right? I'm going to do something so much more full. When we think of Abraham, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They knew personally who the Lord was as El Shaddai. And listen, I'm not trying to even allude that he stops being El Shaddai when he is the I Am. He is still very much El Shaddai, the God over our inadequacies, the God who is able to show his sufficient grace through our weaknesses. But I'm saying he's going to reveal himself even more so to the world. This, this redemptive work that he's going to do in Exodus, it's not going to be between him and Abraham. Right? It's not going to be between him and Isaac or him and, him and Jacob. It's going to be between him and the nation of Israel, two million plus people. And it's going to be done in such a public way that all in Egypt are going to know God is the great I am. And you and I, we're still talking about it today because God is the great I am. You read through the Psalms, you read through the prophets, you see this account, God being the great I am and revealing himself so is, is something that is a thread all the way through. It's beautiful, but that's what he's saying. Moses, I'm going to do something that is so much bigger. If I told you right now, you wouldn't get it, but I need you to trust me. I need you to trust my word. I need you to believe me. There may be someone in here, and I'm sharing a whole lot of words, and we're covering a whole lot of text, but you really only need to hear one thing this morning. God is the I am for your situation. And he's asking you, trust me. Trust in my word, abide in me, and be patient, and let me do what I'm going to do. That may be all you need to know. You can tune out for the rest, but the rest of you, there's still some more good stuff here. But as we think about this, he shares this. This is who I am. I'm going to exalt my name. And we're going to see that is what God is going to do in the book of Exodus as he stretches out his hand. So Moses, ultimately, remember who I am. Now, if that wasn't enough, to me, that's more than enough, right? That's more than enough answer to prayer. But God is still not even done. Picking up back in verse 6. He says, Therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. But here's some new scripture. He says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses thus spoke to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of the anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command or a charge for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So notice again, Moses is feeling the pressure, right? He's come to the Lord. He's feeling the pressure. Things have gotten worse before they've gotten better. He's wanted to try and relieve the pressure. So God has said, remind, let me remind you who I am. But then God is saying, I also want you to know you're not able to do this. I'm not asking you to do this. There's so many things that this just ministers to my heart in such depth when, when the Lord is telling Moses, listen, I'm not asking you to do this. All I'm asking you is to be faithful. 
All I'm asking you is to testify to my word. But we know he's not asking Moses to do this because seven times in the verses that we just read, seven times God's number, the number of completion, divine perfection, seven times says, God says, I will do this, Moses. I will do this. Be reminded who I am and what I promise I will do. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you, God says. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. I will be your God. I will lead you into the land that I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you as a heritage. So Moses, it doesn't depend upon you at all. I'm not placing all this upon your shoulders and saying, you go do it all, right? God doesn't do that for us either. He says, let me work through you. I will do it. I'm going to be your victory. I'm going to be your sufficiency. But seven times he tells Moses, I'm going to do this. Now, I don't know about you, but as I take a step back, I think God didn't have to do any of this. God has already told Moses all of this stuff, right? And so the fact that he comes back to tell him again, I say, God, you're amazing, right? How many times do we think, I'm so glad that I'm not the Lord, right? I'm so, I'd be horrible at it. But I think about if I'm the Lord, there's no survivors, right? Nobody survives if I'm the Lord. Because I'm, I have the mentality sometimes, listen, I told you once, I told you a thousand times, like, why are you making me tell you this again? But if you notice that God is gracious to say, oh, you're discouraged again? Except he doesn't say again. He's like, oh, you're discouraged? I'm a good father. I am full of loving kindness and mercy and graciousness towards you. I'll tell you again. I'll remind you who I am again and again and again and again and again. I'll remind you what I've done. I'll remind you what I will do for you again and again and again and again and again. I love singing that song that, God, you are a good, good father. And I think two goods just aren't enough for how good he really is. But he's so gracious, he's so patient to tell Moses all of this. Hear this again. I, I want you to know that is, that's a charge for all of us. In the old King James, there's this word called importunity. And it means to insist with persistence. And it's used in the context of the, the persistent widow going to that unrighteous judge again and again and again and knocking in the middle of the night and knocking all the time. And the judge kind of getting frustrated and saying, what do you want? And it says, because of her importunity, the judge will finally hear her case. And then Jesus says, pray like that. Right? Pray with insistence. Pray with persistence. Ask, because God is not like the unrighteous judge. He's a perfect judge. But it's in the context of prayer. Will you ask and keep on asking, seek and keep on seeking, knock and keep on knocking, and the door will be open to you. God will be found by you. Your prayers will be responded to. Worst case scenario, he's going to send the Holy Spirit to the one who asks. That's the context that we're supposed to have in relationship with our Heavenly Father. When we're discouraged, when things aren't making sense, when we have tough questions, ask and keep on asking. Keep coming back to Him. It's not like He doesn't want to share and minister to our very heart. So that's exactly what God is showing through Moses here. So He's going to tell him all this. Going to reiterate all this again. And then He's going to say, Moses, now go back out and tell Pharaoh again. And Moses is going to do kind of his Moses thing again. And that old familiar reluctant feeling is back with him again. And he's, oh, but I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. And the Lord's like... Except probably not. I would be like, really? We're doing this again? Probably God isn't that way. Forgive me, Lord. I'm not trying to misrepresent him. But he, he, he's going to say, I've sent you Aaron. Aaron's your spokesperson. Go in there and share. And he's saying, well, I just shared all this that he told me with the Hebrew people and they didn't heed me. If they're not going to heed me, how is Pharaoh? And he says, with a command, with a charge. He says, just go. You obey. Go. 
Be faithful. Let me do what I'm going to do here. And, and we'll pick that up next week and kind of see what is going to happen. He's going to go and there's so much more to the story that's going to happen. But as we start to close this down and we start to prepare our hearts for communion, as I read through this chapter... As I go through the thread of this chapter, and I think about all of us, I think about my life, and I think about all of us, there's a couple points I want to make. Number one, I don't want any of us to have selective hearing. Right? I don't want any of us to go through this chapter and see like, oh, it's so amazing who God says He is. It is amazing. And it's so amazing what God says I will do, and it is amazing. But I want you to also see that it's also hard. That it's also difficult. I don't want us just to omit the hard aspects about Moses' life and say, well, it's just all good. It wasn't always good. It wasn't always easy. Following Jesus, to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus, it isn't always easy. He's never promised it was going to be easy. He promises a whole lot of cool things, but not that one. Which means there is some difficulty that we need to brace for. We need to be prepared for. So don't have selective listening as we look through some of these things. Sometimes things do get harder before they get easier. Sometimes sometimes things do get worse before they get better. Sometimes we need to confront discouragement just like Moses did. Sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, we need to keep coming back to this same place. Saying, God, I'm still struggling with this. It's not a one-time thing, right? He didn't get to go into Pharaoh one time, faces his difficulty one time and it was over. He's going to go through a lot more times. That's true for us. Sometimes that thorn in the flesh or that difficulty, Paul prayed, pleaded three times, right? But more than one, sometimes even more. But I just want us to know that. Don't just think with selective listening that it's always going to be easy. That's not what the Bible teaches. But when we come to the solution, when we come to the pattern of when we find that place, we know that God is for us, not against us. We know that we can lay out our difficulties to the Lord and ask those questions. We can even bring the whys to the Lord. But be prepared for Him to turn that why to the who, who He is, and what He's capable of doing. So let's not forget how God responds to to Moses here. He is and he will do what he said he's going to do. But what he really offers Moses, he offers all of us. Moses has two situations. He can listen to Pharaoh and he can build his life upon the fluctuation of an always changing circumstance. Or he can listen to the Lord and he can build his life upon a firm foundation, upon the unchanging truth, the rock that is the Lord. And that's us. We can choose which one are we going to build our lives upon. Which one are we going to believe? I want to build my life upon the rock. I want to build my life upon even when the sands and the winds and the shifting things are happening around me, my life can be secure upon the rock that is Christ. And I want to do that. But, but as we think about that, we say, well, that's, that's what we want to do. All right, Lord, I want to do that. We just need to understand life's going to have its ups and downs. Ministry's going to have its ups and downs. Marriage is going to have its ups and downs. Child rearing is going to have its ups and downs. The workplace is going to have its ups and downs. But if Jesus is really our rock, and we've really fixed our eyes upon him, you know what? There's only ups when it comes with Jesus. If our eyes are really anchored heavenward, if we're really waiting for the, the one who has gone to prepare a place for us, the, the heavenly home, it's really just looking up all the time. I know we're in a crazy time. There's a virus spreading all over. It's all over social media. It's all over the news. The Dow is going crazy. There's all sorts of different things that are just like the crazy shifting sands of the fluctuations. But then here's Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right? Immovable. 
immovable amongst all the other chaos. And so we can choose. I'm going to fix my eyes. I'm not saying don't be wise. I'm not saying don't be prudent. But I'm saying fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't let all those things of this world toss you to and fro. We can be anchored upon the word of God. Now as we think about this, I just, I went through some of these things. I put several in your study guide. But as we know, we talked about this a few weeks ago, as we as Christians today, in a new covenant relationship with Jesus, we can come and he's going to tell us the same thing. Don't forget who I am. Right? Jesus, he unmistakably links himself to be the same God of the burning bush when he says, before Abraham was, I am. And the other seven I am statements we talked about a few weeks ago. So Jesus is going to say, hey, remember who I am. He's going to tell us all that. But I also also want you to know, to us, Jesus also made some amazing I will statements. Just like God is speaking to Moses, listen to some of these I will statements. Again, I put them all in your study guides for you to look at later. But just think about some of these. Jesus said, I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. He says, I will not leave you orphans. I will not abandon you. I will not forsake in you. Some of you maybe have felt that way by others in your life. Jesus says, I will never do that. I will not leave you orphans. Jesus says, I will be with you always. Right? It's not always easy. The things that we go through in this life are not always easy. There's some real difficulties. There's persecution. There's heartache. There's suffering. There's disease. There's death. At least the first death. Not the second death, the separation from God, but the first death physically. But he says, I will be with you always. And even when you're absent from the body, you're going to be in the presence of the Lord. We trust that. He says this, I will make you fishers of men. So many times we think, I'm going to be a fisher of men. I've got to do it. I've got to do the thing. And we forget that Jesus says, I, I will make you. I'm going to make you. It, it's, it blesses my heart every time I read it. Jesus says, I will build my church. That doesn't rest upon my shoulders, right? That doesn't rest upon anybody else's shoulders. He says, I will do it. I'm going to build my church. And I say, yes, Lord, please, you do it your way. What about this? In the context of a leper coming to Jesus saying, will you heal me? I know you're able, but are you willing? Right? That's often the situation. God, we know you're able. You're the great I am, but are you willing? And he says to that leper, I'm willing. Be cleansed. I'm willing. He says this, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again to receive you to myself. We talk about the resurrection being our blessed hope, the coming, Jesus' second coming being our blessed hope. I will come again, he says. Jesus will come again. He says, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father in heaven. As you're being faithful and you're living as a witness and you're declaring that your hope is in Jesus and his crucified, resurrected life as you confess him before men, he says, I will confess you before my Father. I will declare what you've done in faith boldly in front of my Father, the judge of all things. The last one I'll leave you with, he says, I will pray to the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Speaking of the Holy Spirit. Some difficult things that we walk in in our life. Some challenges. But the Lord says, I will pray. Do you think Jesus has some powerful prayers? Do you think Jesus, the one who sits at the right hand of the Father, the one who is without sin or without spot, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh, do you think he's got some powerful sway with the Father? I sure think he does. And he says, I will pray for you. And I will pray that God sends the Holy Spirit, God's abiding presence into our lives. All that we need to live a life of godliness. All that we need to be reminded of the truth of what Jesus spoke 
all that we need to be equipped and empowered to live out this life effectively as a witness for Jesus. He says, I will send the helper to you. I will do it. So remember those things, who God is and what he said he will do. And there's no better place to rest and be reminded of that than on a communion Sunday as we come to the table, the Lord's Supper, and we remember his broken body and we remember his spilled blood and we simply say, Jesus, you did it all. I'm here because of you. And so I want to engage with that. If you're here and you've never put your faith in Jesus, I want you to know that here's an opportunity to do that. Here's an opportunity to surrender your life and say, Jesus, you are my righteousness. I can't live to be your perfect standard, but I know that you died in my place. You believe that with your heart, you confess that with your mouth, you're saved, and you can partake these elements and remember the broken body and the spilled blood that is all of our righteousness. That's our hope. Jesus is our hope. So as these elements come around, take them, hold them. We want to partake of them together as we close out our service. So let me pray as we just kind of close up the message and prepare for communion. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And God, I just pray that you'd settle our hearts here just for a little bit longer. I know time's ticking, but God, you're worth it. And so I pray that you would just settle our hearts just a little bit longer as we focus in on this this all-important ordinance that you gave us. To remember your broken body. That it's by your stripes that we've been healed. That you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And we remember this blood, the cup, the juice that's in this cup, but, but blood red because it's the blood of the new covenant that we are found in you through your perfect death, through your perfect resurrection. God, prepare our hearts as we settle these things out and worship you. In Jesus' name.